0: live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris uh Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, April 18th, 2014. There's a million things I'd like to say. I think I'll leave them for tomorrow. I I, I can't understand how certain white nationalists can be so off base about Russia and 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 the Russian population. Russian um, political, as, p- political leanings, um, I'm going to try to do a follow-up article soon to my article on the Ukraine. If you look at the, um, the general population of Ukraine in a percentage which is Russian, and you look at the voting results in Ukrainian elections and the general population which votes. Communist, you'll see a clear correlation between the Russian population and those who vote for the Communist Party. That's because the Russian people, they, they still, well, well, don't get me wrong, the American people, the way they are programmed into supporting this, this neo-con imperialism and this Israeli state, and, and it's like a religion to them. Well, the same is true in Russia. The, the the glory of the Soviet Empire and and the communist system, they support that like it's a religion to them. And so it is with the Russians in the Ukraine. And, and that's why that the, the um, Ukraine is currently so balkanized. The white Western Ukrainians. They seek independence and and self-determination. The real nationalists in the Ukraine, these um, people that are in power right now, and when I say that, I mean Turchinov, uh, I mean mean this um, Yatsenyuk, and I mean Kimoshenko. Turchinov, Yatsenyuk, Kimoshenko, they're all old Soviet apparatchiks, that they're all, well, Timoshenko well, and Yatsenyuk yeah, are both Jews. They're both of Jewish blood. And that and, um, they're Western leaning liberals. They're not really nationalists at all. It's unfortunate that the, um, the Russian propaganda has them confused with the real nationalists who would rather maintain independence and it's been and i've been informed that the many at least of the real nationalists they would let those eastern provinces go in order to um to maintain their own self-determination they don't care about those eastern provinces but these Jews in charge They're not going to let the eastern provinces go, and they don't care about the real nationalists and the real people of Ukraine. They only care about their own pockets and and the ability to exploit the people of Ukraine for themselves. Just like the Jews, the Jewish oligarchs whom the Russians have propped up in Ukraine these past several years, they've exploited Ukraine for themselves. It's a battle over it's a battle over the Ukraine by two groups of vultures. That there's a lot of misunderstanding, especially in white, in, in Western white nationalist circles concerning the Ukraine. There's more understanding than that. I mean, that there are people um, who prop themselves up as prominent white nationalists who are telling us that all these people in Russia are white. I got news for you. All those people in Russia, they're not white. I would bet only a minority of them are really white. The rest of them are mixed Arabs, mixed what, what's called Tatars, 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 however you want to pronounce it. Those people are, are, are Mongols. They're basically the, the, um, the refuse from the golden Hordes and their conquest of much of Eurasia. That's what tatars are. So, so these people aren't white, and it's crazy to um, think that most of them are white. When I look at um, even these model um, Russians who are put out there, that these tennis players, Anna Kornikova, you think she's white? She's not white. <laughs> she's a damn Mongol. You think Sharapova's white? She's not white. She's a damn Mongol. They're not white. I mean, you could make the claim based on skin color, but the true nature of of the Aryan, the, the ideal Aryan female is not there. They're Mongols. Look at their pictures closely. That's all I'll say about that. Before continuing with our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans, it is necessary to be reminded of the scope of the epistle, which includes an understanding of who it was written to, for whom Paul's words were intended. We cannot imagine that we may pick up and read a letter written to one particular party, and that we can then substitute any other party in its references, unless the letter itself makes such an explicit allowance in its own expressions. Paul's epistle was addressed to Romans, and these Romans were pagans. These were not Judean, meaning Jewish in this instance, Judean inhabitants of Rome. This is apparent, as Paul states, that they had reverenced and served the creation rather than the creator because they had fashioned idols out of living creatures. Those things cannot be said of Judeans. So he's writing to Romans. However, it is also quite evident that the Romans themselves were all the ancient dispersions of the children of Israel. Since Paul tells them that which is to be known of Yahweh is visible among them, since Yahweh had made it known to them. And those things may only be said of ancient Israel. Paul also told them, that knowing Yahweh, they, know, they thought of him not as God, nor were they thankful, and that they changed the estimation of the incorruptible God into a resemblance of an image of corruptible man and birds and four-legged animals and reptiles. Things which could only be said, of the ancient Israelites who at some point turned to paganism, which is indeed explained of ancient Israel in the books of the Old Testament. So Paul was writing to Romans, and the Romans were descended from Abraham through Jacob Israel, and his own writing in his epistle is proof enough of the truth of that statement. However, there is much more in the chapters to come, and these things can also be demonstrated from an examination of the Old Testament and of ancient history. We left off in the last segment of our presentation where Paul explained that because they forsook him, meaning the Romans, Yahweh handed the Romans over to unclean and lustful desires, which became manifest. In homosexual behavior and other immorality, which had become prevalent at Rome, such things are also manifest in the secular Roman literature of the period. Then, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul chastises anyone who would judge these things hypocritically, if perhaps they are also practicing such immorality. Many of the Roman statesmen, Roman leaders were actually picking and choosing their immorality, and, and many of them were absolutely immoral. Nero, yeah, Nero was the emperor as Paul wrote this epistle. Caligula, Gaius, Gaius Caesar is another clear example. Paul then reminds his readers of the impending judgment of God, but also of his promises of mercy in judgment which should lead men to repentance. Finally, we saw Paul attest that the judgment of men by God is in equity according to the deeds of the man's life and not according to the stature or stature or status of persons which any man had while he lived. Paul wrote in verse 11 that there is no respect of the stature of persons with Yahweh. And by that he meant to distinguish Judeans and Greeks, the Israelite remnant which maintained the law and the covenant in comparison to the anciently dispersed Israelites, such as the Romans, who were put off from the covenants, that they would all be judged equitably by their works. Here in verse 12, Paul continues by explaining the mercy of God and judgment which Yahweh God had indeed promised to the children of Israel, where he says, for as many as have done wrong without law, without law, then are they cleansed. And I know that's not what your King James reads, and we'll get to that at length in a minute. And as many as have done wrong in the law, by the law, they will be judged. There is a major difference here with the all other translations concerning the way that the first clause of this verse is read, I won't repent of it. The King James Version here has perish rather than cleanse. It reads, for as many as have done wrong without law, without law they shall perish. I don't agree with that. All other translations read similarly. This difference lies in the interpretation of a single word, a verb, apoluntahi. I'm sorry that most of these Greek words are tongue twisters. They are for me also. Apoluntahi. Here it is asserted that we must reject the usual derivation of this word from the Greek verb apolumi. Strong's number six twenty two, which generally means to destroy. And that's how the King James and Strong's and coordinates and all other lexicographers and, and, and translators I've seen rendered a word. The verb without the prefix without the prefix is luntahi. It's the third person plural present passive indicative of the verb luo, Strong's number three zero six eight, which may be verified in either of the current editions of the Liddell and Scott lexicons and their entry at the word luo, I'm going to include, linked to the podcast of this program on Christogania. I'm going to include a scanned copy of the page from the Liddell and Scott Intermediate Lexicon for the verb luo so that the, the, the form Luntahi can be seen below it. it it'll just document my assertions here. Therefore, it may well be asserted that the correct root of this form, apoluntahi, is the verb apoluo, Strong's number 628. Apoluo means to wash off, to wash clean. Forms of this word, apaluo appear elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul uses it at one. Corinthians 6.11, it appears in Acts 22.16, so the word's certainly not strange to Paul. It's a common word. Now, the form, apoluntahi, because of the way Greek verbs are formed, and apolumi is rather irregular, the form apoluntahi that appears in this passage may in fact belong to either of these two verbs and it appears elsewhere in Matthew 26, Luke 5, Hebrews 1, where it certainly is derived from apolumi. That can be told from the context. So we have a verb here that could come from apolumi, which means to destroy, or it could come from apoluo, which means to wash off or to cleanse.
1: I believe that the manner
0: in which it is rendered in the Christogenia New Testament is more accurate in the context in which it appears and is more consistent with Paul's other teachings concerning Israel in relation to sin. For instance, at Romans 11.26, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he basically states that all Israel will be saved, and a man who is an, an Israelite, regardless of his sins, what will still find himself in the kingdom of heaven, whether he is any works which survive, any good works in this life, or whether all his works are destroyed in the fire. And and we'll get into that concept more as this presentation progresses. Paul informs us here that those Israelites who seek justification in the law shall be judged by the law, while those Israelites who seek mercy in Christ shall be cleansed of their sins. The accuracy of this reading becomes fully apparent in the subsequent lines here of Paul's epistle, where he tells us that the nations to which he is referring do not have the law. Paul makes the same conclusion himself where he states the following, from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 23, but now apart from the law, the justice of Yahweh is made known as attested by the law and the prophets, but justice of Yahweh through the faith of Yahshua Christ, for all those who are believing, for there is no distinction for all, meaning all of the Israelites, for all have done wrong and fall short of the honor of Yahweh. And Paul goes on to attest that no flesh shall be justified in the rituals of the law. This fully substantiates the Christogenian New Testament translation of Romans 2.12. All men sin, as Paul professes in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and again in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Yet, he is certainly not inferring here that they are all going to die for it. Yet such a position must be attributed to Paul in the rendering of Romans 2.12, as it is found in the King James Version and in all other translations. Rather, Yahweh promised the children of Israel, those very same nations to whom Paul is referring, that he would cleanse all of their sins, and he does so only in Christ. From Isaiah, chapter 53, from verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid upon him, meaning the promised Messiah, the iniquity of us all, the reasons for that. If I don't discuss it before, then will be discussed at length when we present Romans chapter seven. I'll get there. I'll get there before summer, I believe. Over and over and above the judgments of the law. Yahweh promised the children of Israel that he would indeed cleanse them of all their sins. From Jeremiah chapter 33, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. We'll discuss the reasons for that. I believe I'll be able to present an argument giving the reasons for that when we get to Romans chapter 5.
1: Again, from
0: 1 John chapter 1. And this is the message which we have heard from him, and we announce to you, that Yahweh is light, and there is not any darkness in him. If we should say that we have fellowship with him, and we would walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we would walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, with one another, and with the blood of his Son, Yahshua cleanses us from all guilt or all sin. If we should say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we would admit our errors, he is trustworthy and just, that he would remit the sins for us and would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we, just, if we should say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The cessation of the power of the rituals of the law to intercede for the sins of Israel in the eyes of God is indeed a matter of biblical prophecy, as Paul states in Romans 3.21, which we have just cited. From Hosea, chapter 8, from verse 11. Because Ephraim has made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him to sin. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. They sacrifice flesh for the sacrifices of mine offerings and eat it. But Yahweh accepts them not. Now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. They shall return to Egypt. The reference to Egypt is an allegory for captivity. And it is not to be taken literally. Shortly after Hosea wrote those words, the children of Israel were indeed taken into captivity by the Assyrians. We see agreement with these things, which are written in Hosea, in chapter 1 of Isaiah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith Yahweh? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams, and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks, or of lambs, or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Yahweh rejects all of Israel's fulfillment of the rituals at the time of Isaiah and Hosea. They mean nothing anymore because the people did not justly keep his law. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble under me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yeah, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you make you clean, wash yourself, make yourself clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow, the rituals, the the facade, the pretense of righteousness in the temples in today's churches, it doesn't get you anywhere unless you live by God's law, and have mercy on your brethren.
1: Come now, let us reason together.
0: saith Yahweh, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I know in in the past, many times I've cited Daniel chapter 9 as an example that the sacrifices in the temple and, and, and the rituals and those things would end, but it's found throughout the prophets. Here we have it in Isaiah and in Hosea. In the words of the prophet Jeremiah, we are informed that this holds true for the remnant of Judah in Jerusalem as well. From Jeremiah chapter 6, from verse 19, Here, O earth, behold! I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words. Now, Jeremiah is long after Hosea and Isaiah. Jeremiah is writing strictly to the the remnant that was left at Jerusalem by the Assyrians, where Isaiah and Hosea were writing primarily Even though Jerusalem was included, they were writing primarily to all those of Israel and Judah who were taken away by the Assyrians a hundred years before Jeremiah began to write. Jeremiah is writing to the people of Jerusalem that were left. Here, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. To what purpose comes there to me incense from Sheba and the sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. Therefore saith Yahweh, behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people, and the fathers and the son together shall fall upon them. The neighbor and his friend shall perish. And therefore we had the Babylonian deportations after the destruction of Jerusalem. So from the time of the captivities of Israel
1: and of Judah. The
0: rituals of the law are clearly ineffectual in relation to sin. Yet it is also clear from Isaiah chapter 1 and elsewhere that Israel is beckoned to do justly apart from the rituals. That's what we're seeing Paul plead here. It is also just been demonstrated from these three prophets that Judaism is wholly illegitimate. Judaism's illegitimate. Yes, there was a remnant kingdom, and yes, that was the will of God also, but Judaism is illegitimate. That illegitimacy wasn't finalized until 70 B.C., but Judaism is illegitimate because it's based solely on The idea that people can find, that people of, and anybody who wants to convert to be a Jew and get circumcised can find their righteousness in these rituals and these laws. Judaism was illegitimate long before it was contrived. And it's an entirely contrived religion. It's not the Old Testament religion. Just as we had explained presenting Romans chapter 1, where Paul quoted the prophet Habakkuk, the law had failed when the children of Israel neglected it. And therefore, as Paul cited the prophet where he said, that the just shall live by faith. Here, in the following verses of this epistle, in a parenthetical statement, the identity of the just is further defined by the Apostle. However, we have just seen corroboration in Hosea, Isaiah, and Jeremiah for those words of Habakkuk, that the law, because the children of Israel neglected it, the law would come to nothing. The rituals would no longer be an acceptable sacrifice for sin an acceptable appeasement of the deity, an acceptable propitiation to Yahweh their God. That's over. It's over by 586 B.C. It's really over before that.
1: Here Paul defines who the just
0: are. Verse 13, Romans chapter 2. Since not the hearers of the law are just before Yahweh, but the performers of the law are to be considered just. For when the nations, not Gentiles, the nations, Paul defines these nations in Romans chapter 4 as being the seed of Abraham, which Abraham was promised. For when the nations, which do not have the law, because the ancient Israelites were put away from the nation and, and didn't keep the law, They were put away without it in captivity. For when the nations which do not have the law by nature practice the things of the law, these not having law themselves are a law
1: who exhibit the work
0: of the law in their hearts, bearing witness with their conscience and between one another, considering accusations or then defending the accused. If the nations which do not have the law can exhibit the work of the law written in their their hearts, then those nations must have descended from the dispersions of the ancient children of Israel. They are the just of Habakkuk 2.4 and Romans 1.17. Israelites who are no longer under the law, but who nevertheless follow the spirit of the law written in their hearts. From Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant, with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts. And I will be the God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That same Jeremiah promises a covenant to the house of Israel which hadn't existed in Palestine for over a hundred years before he started writing. Yahweh did not lose track of his people. Paul paraphrases Jeremiah at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, where he says, This is the covenant which I will devise for them after those days, says Yahweh, Giving my laws upon their hearts, I will also inscribe them upon their minds. So we see how Paul interpreted the line in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three that says, I will put my law in their inward parts. He is clearly speaking to the Israelite heirs of the covenant in both epistles, Hebrews and Romans. How could that be? Yes, they were related, there's no doubt. In Romans chapter 4, Paul asks his readers, now what may we say that our forefather, I know the King James Version only has father, but the Greek says forefather explicitly, our forefather Abraham has found concerning the flesh. Then he says that indeed, Romans 4.13, Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring, that he is to be the heir of the society, but through righteousness of faith. So we see that Paul taught these Romans that the promises of God were to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring. Then Paul says in Romans 4, where he proceeds to define the faith of Abraham, that Therefore, from of the faith that, in accordance with favor, then the promise is certain to all the offspring, not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Does that mean that Abraham's the father of everybody? No. That means that Abraham's the father of the Romans, and of the Israelites. That's who Paul's talking about. Just as it is written that a father of many nations I have made you before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing. Well, the whole basis of Christian identity is to identify those nations because those nations They exist, and they are Abraham's offspring. But those nations didn't exist when the promise to Abraham was made. That's why Paul says that Yahweh calls things not existing as existing. There were no Germans when the promise to Abraham was made. There were no Scandinavian nations. There was no Ireland, no Scotland, no England, no Britain. There was no France, no Italy, no well well yeah there was a, there was proto Greeks, but they were Ionians, there were no Dorian Greeks, no Danon Greeks, no Scythians. there were people that wandered up into the steppes long before the children of Israel they were they were forerunners, they were not ancestors, predecessors are not necessarily ancestors. Somebody in England before the Angles aren't the ancestors of the Angles. These nations did not exist in 2000 BC. We can identify indeed that they descended from the seed of Abraham through the Bible and ancient classical history.
1: That a father of many nations, I have made
0: you before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing. Who contrary to expectation, because he didn't believe that, or, or it wouldn't have been expected that he believed that, but he did contrary to what most people would accept who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. The honest observer of Israelite history, and I apologize if I'm going to repeat this all again, to a much greater extent when I present Romans chapter 4 in a few weeks, but it has to be compounded here with Romans chapter 2, because it, Well, well, it's prerequisite to understanding Paul's words in Romans chapter 2. The honest observer of Israelite history, which certainly may be called history because the historical accounts of Scripture are verified in countless ancient inscriptions, The honest observer can easily determine that most of the children of Israel forsook Yahweh their God for paganism and either migrated away from Palestine over the eight centuries leading up to the Assyrian deportations or were carried into Assyrian or Babylonian captivity. These are those whom Paul refers when he says, Then the promise is certain. To all the offspring, not to that of the law only, that remnant of Judea, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Notice that Paul qualifies his remark by first stating that the promise is certain to all of the offspring. When Paul says, who is the father of us all, he means all of the offspring. He doesn't mean anybody who wants to come along and claim to be a child of Abraham. He doesn't mean the Kenyans, Hutus, Tutsis, Mondingos, the the Bushmen. He doesn't mean the Chinamen, the Indian. He's not referring to them. They're not offspring of Abraham. They have an
1: alien origination.
0: Then Paul describes the faith of Abraham as Abraham's having believed God when he was promised that his offspring or seed would become many nations. The intention of the scripture is absolutely contrary to the universalist idea that somehow many nations magically became Abraham's seed. Rather, Abraham's seed became many nations. This can be demonstrated in ancient history and Paul of Tarsus understood that history. If one is not of one of those nations, one cannot be a Christian because Abraham believed that the nations of the promise would come from his loins. And for that, he was accredited by God. Rather, if you are not, one of Abraham's seed, then you cannot share in the faith of Abraham because Abraham did not believe in you. To be in the faith of Abraham, one must not only believe what Abraham believed, but one must be a product of that very promise that Abraham believed in. The fools, not knowing history, corrupt these things because they do not Understand that the basis for our Christian identity faith is indeed the prophets, the gospel, and the letters of Paul. Paul began this part of his discourse with a reference to hypocritical judgment back there at the beginning of Romans chapter 2. Now Paul tells the Romans that when the nations which do not have the law, meaning the law of God, by nature practice the things of the law, these not having law themselves are a law, meaning that the Romans did well to found a society based upon a common sense of justice and the rule of law.
1: And therefore, they exhibit the work of the
0: law written in their hearts. Meaning that by founding a society based upon the rule of law, which, by the way, the Romans believed came from their god, Jove, which is cognate to the word Yahweh meaning that by doing so, they fulfilled the promise made to the children of Israel that God would write his law on their hearts as attested in Jeremiah, chapter 31. We have corroboration for all this in Isaiah, chapter 51.
1: And a prophecy certainly pertinent today. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that
0: seek Yahweh. Look under the rock whence ye are hewn, and under the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you, for I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. This is a Hebrew parallelism. Abraham's the rock, and Sarah's the pit. For Yahweh shall comfort Zion, his people. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the Garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, and mine arm shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, And on mine arm they shall trust. The final 26 chapters of Isaiah are addressed to the isles and the coastlands of the west, beginning with Isaiah chapter 41. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like a garment. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner, but my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Hear ye not the reproach of men, neither be afraid of their reviling, For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm
1: shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever,
0: and my salvation from generation to generation. The people in whose heart is my law, meaning those people who had the law of God written in their hearts according to the promise of Jeremiah 31, are also those who can look under the rock whence ye are hewn and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bear you. If one is not of Abraham, Yahweh then reminds us that I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. And therefore, anyone else attempting to join the flock is a pretender, an infiltrator who does not belong.
1: The other races
0: cannot be Christians. If any of the other races in part descended from abraham then they're bastards and a bastard shall not enter the congregation of yahweh the other races cannot be christians because he did not put his name upon them
1: after telling them that they exhibited the law written
0: in their hearts which i keep looking for on YouTube in, in, in Kenya and Uganda and the Congo, but I never see it. The other races simply can never have it. After telling them that they exhibited the law written in their hearts, Paul, commen- Paul commended the Romans for bearing witness with their conscience and between one another, considering accusations or then defending the accused. This is also a fulfillment of scripture, where Israel, having neglected the law, was admonished to judge righteously. From Isaiah chapter 1, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. We see a similar admonition to the king of Judah in Jeremiah chapter 22. Thus saith Yahweh, execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, the Jewish bill collectors. And do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger or the guest, the fatherless, plead for the widow, I'm sorry. Nor the widow. Neither shed blood in this innocent. Pl- neither shed innocent blood in this place. For if you do this thing, indeed, then shall there enter in by the gates of this house, kings sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots on horses. He and his servants and his people. Of course, the king of Judah failed to do that, and the people were carried into captivity. We cannot assert that Roman law was perfect when measured with biblical law. However, it nevertheless met the basic requirements of biblical law regarding fair trials and the consideration of witnesses in judgment. Furthermore, the Romans did have laws safeguarding the estates of the deceased and ensuring that a woman could hold and inherit property, to some degree safeguarding widows and orphans it is apparent in the words of the prophets cited here and in others that among other sins the ancient Israelites were depriving women and orphans of their estates that was one of their major sins oppressing the poor of their brethren and looting and pillaging their houses from Zechariah chapter 7 And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, or guest, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken, and pulled away the shoulder, and stopped their ears, that they should not hear. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 2 in a day when Yahweh will judge the secrets of men according to my good message through Yahshua Christ. Paul Paul is professing that it is through Christ that Yahweh God shall judge man, a message consistent with Scripture from Isaiah chapter 33. For Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king. He will save us. Christ is Yahweh. From Revelation chapter 19, Behold a white horse, and he sitting upon it, faithful and true, and he judges in righteousness and makes war. And he has upon
1: his garment
0: and upon his thigh a name written King of Kings and Sovereign of Sovereigns or Lord of Lords, if you will. As Christ himself admonished, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Paul has been criticized here for referring to the gospel of Christ as my gospel. Paul also calls this same gospel the gospel of God, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel of his son, Romans chapter 1, verse 9. The gospel of Christ at Romans one sixteen, the gospel of peace in Romans ten fifteen, quoting Isaiah. And then in Romans ten sixteen, Isaiah is quoted again where he wrote, Yahweh, who has believed our report? Isaiah fifty three one. In other places later in Romans, Paul again refers to the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, and my gospel, once again in Romans 16, 25. Yet, and, and, and Paul refers to it simply as the gospel on many occasions in this epistle. Yet, how many different gospels do we have? Do we have five different gospels? The gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, my gospel, the gospel of peace. Do we have five different gospels? We have one gospel. One gospel which Paul presents, and in one or two places here in Romans, he calls it my gospel. All Christians should likewise assume a sense of ownership and responsibility for the gospel. All Christians should cleave to it and hold it as their own. Isaiah sets the precedent in Isaiah 53, Yahweh, who has believed our report. The critics of Paul, they usually don't criticize Isaiah. From Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23, buy the truth and sell it not also wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begets a wise child shall have joy in him. We all have an opportunity to fulfill those words of the Proverbs. In the manner of 3 John, where the apostle said to Gaius, For I rejoice greatly. When the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walks in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. When you buy the truth, as the writer of the Proverbs said, you certainly can claim a stake in it as your own, keeping in mind, of course, the admonition of the same apostle where he wrote in another epistle that no lie is the truth. We can't condemn Paul for calling the gospel my gospel. It was his, as well as Isaiah's, as well as being the gospel of Christ. Romans 2.17, but if you are called a Judean, the The majority text said, behold, you who are called a Judean. But if you are called a Judean and depend upon the law and boast in God, and you know the purpose and you scrutinize the things that differ, being instructed from the law, and have persuaded yourself to be a guide of the blind, a light for those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the childish, having the semblance of knowledge and of truth in the law, are you really teaching another, not teaching yourself? Proclaiming not to steal, do you steal? Declaring not to commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Loathing idols. Do you commit sacrilege? You know, Paul's, Paul's dialogue here reflects an understanding that's not stated explicitly, but which we've already explained from the prophets where we quoted that tell us that sacrifice is no longer Acceptable for sin. Acceptable as propitiation for sin. Think about that. If sacrifice is not acceptable as propitiation for sin, then if you don't accept Christ, you have no propitiation for sin. Paul's asking these Judeans who depend on the law if they keep the entire law. If they ever sin, if they say that they don't sin, they make God a liar. If they do sin, according to the law and the prophets, they have no propitiation for that sin. There's no way to appease Yahweh. The only way to appease Yahweh for our sin is by accepting Christ. The Judeans were doing that. Paul's basically telling them they have no propitiation. He's challenging them here.
1: From Romans chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, Paul is comparing
0: Greeks to Judeans. Many of the Greeks as well as the Romans were actually descended from Israelite tribes who settled Various parts of the Mediterranean coasts as early as the time of ex- the Exodus itself. Compared to Judeans, the Romans would fit in the category of Greeks because Greek is not properly an ethnic designation. Greek is a designation of language, religion, and custom. From Romans 2.12, Paul was comparing those of the ancient dispersions of the children of Israel, which would include the Romans and many of the Greek tribes, and who were as many as who have done wrong without law, who were promised to receive mercy apart from the law, that mercy, of course, being in Christ. Paul was comparing that group with those are the Judeans who continue to depend upon the law for their righteousness. And therefore, as Paul said in Romans 2.12, as many as have done wrong in the law, by the law they will be judged. Why? Because they have no propitiation for sin. Yahweh rejected the sacrifices of Judah and Israel permanently, back in the Old Testament prophets, as we have just displayed from Hosea, from Isaiah, and from Jeremiah. It can also be displayed in Daniel. In reference to this later group, these Judeans who depend upon the law, we have the words of Christ in John chapter 9 from verse 39. And Yahshua said, For judgment I have come into this society that those not seeing would see, and those seeing would be made blind. Some of the Pharisees, being with him, heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Yahshua said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now you say that we see, your sin remains. Paul's giving us the reason for that here in Romans. Something which should not be overlooked in the book of Acts is this, that there were Judean assemblies all throughout the Greco-Roman world, in all of the major cities where Moses was read each Sabbath. Luke records the words of the Apostle James in Acts chapter 15. For Moses of old time has in every city, then that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. The synagogues, or assemblies, were well attended by both Judeans and Greeks, the same people Paul is comparing here. This is evident in Luke's accounts of every assembly throughout the Greek world which was visited by Paul. They all had large audiences of both Judeans and Greeks, go back and read the accounts and acts, it's there. The Judean teachers of the law were indeed aspiring to be guides of the blind and lights for those who sat in darkness by teaching them the law of Moses as the accounts in the book of Acts clearly illustrate.
1: Understanding
0: this and understanding the culture at the time just by reading the book of Acts makes Paul's words here resonate a lot more deeply. Verse 23, you who boasts in the law through transgression of the law, you dishonor Yahweh? Now, I read that as a question and so does the King James Version. The NA 27, the NA 28, they don't. Many translations don't. Indeed, the name of Yahweh through you is blasphemed among the nations, just as it is written. And here Paul apparently cites Ezekiel chapter 36, of which the Judeans are but one fulfillment, one late fulfillment, because this was fulfilled ever since the Assyrian deportations of the children of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 36 from verse 19, And I scattered them among the heathen, or among the nations, the other Adamic Genesis 10 nations. And they were dispersed through the countries according to their way, and according to their doings I judged them. And when they entered under the heathen, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name, when they said to them, These are the people of Yahweh, and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, wherever they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith Yahweh God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, wherever you went. However, the reference may also be to Isaiah chapter 52, which is perhaps more appropriate in the context of this chapter of Romans. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without, without cause. Now therefore, what have I here saith Yahweh that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them, make them the howl, saith Yahweh, and my name continually, every day, is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I, Yahweh telling us that he will be the messiah. The children of Israel put away in disobedience, profane, the name of Yahweh their God every time they invoked it. The next line of that passage from Isaiah is an announcement of the gospel. We won't go that far tonight. Romans 2.25, for circumcision indeed profits if you would practice the law the Codex Claro-Montana says, if you would keep the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Why? Because there are no more rituals of the law that can make propitiation for sin. As the Apostle James said in his epistle, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, James 2.10. Before he wrote his epistle to the Romans, Paul had written to the Galatians, 5.3, and I testify again to every man getting himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire thing. Law. Now, I know the King James says every man who is circumcised, but that's not true. You as an infant, we're pro- pro- in today's world, you were probably circumcised. Most of us are. That's American, modern American, what they call medicine, right? The Jews control it. All our kids are circumcised now, just about. You had no choice in that manner. You can't be committed to to keep the entire law because you were seven days old and some Jew doctor cut your foreskin off. The verb in that passage of Galatians is in the medium voice. And a medium voice verb in Greek properly indicates that the initiator of the action and the recipients of the action are the same. You do it to yourself. That's the medium voice in Greek properly. That's why it's testi- That's why it's translated in that manner in the Christogenian New Testament, Galatians five three. And I testify again to every man getting himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. Why? Because we have mercy in Christ. We'll explain this much further when we get to Romans chapter 7. We are not going to be judged by the law. You have to find your righteousness in Christ. And yes, he commands you to be obedient to his commandments. There's no doubt. But if you find your righteousness by the law, then you're rejecting the mercy which you have received in Christ, because we're all sinners. But under the law, there's no more propitiation for sin. So if Christ is not your propitiation, you better keep the whole law the moment you decide that you have to keep the law. You better keep the whole law if you think you have to keep the law as a matter of condition for your salvation. If Christ isn't your salvation, you better keep the whole law and be without sin because there's no propitiation for sin. That's what Paul's teaching here, and that's what the prophets state. That's what the prophets tell us. So yes, and and we'll get into this in the end of Romans chapter 3. Christians should volunteer to keep the law, but Christians should understand that all men sin, and for that reason... We shouldn't be hard on one another. We should have mercy towards one another, as Christ teaches in the gospel, towards any repentant brethren. But we don't judge each other by the law because Christ isn't going to judge us by the law. If Christ judged us by the law, we would all be dead. We would all be convicted
1: because we all sinned. That's Christianity. Because we have mercy, we should seek all the more
0: to be obedient. That's what Paul explains in the later part of Romans
1: chapter 3. Verse 26.
0: Therefore, if the uncircumcised should keep the judgments of the law, would his uncircumcision not be counted for circumcision? And of course it would. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And of course Paul's talking about uncircumcised Israelites, right? He's not talking about aliens. From Deuteronomy chapter 10. Only Yahweh had a delight in thy fathers to love them, And he chose their seed, offspring, after them. Even you, above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore,
1: the foreskin of your heart
0: and be no more stiff-necked. In other words, if you don't keep the law, the foreskin of your body doesn't matter. The foreskin of your genitals doesn't mean anything. From Jeremiah chapter 4, Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. The law means nothing if you don't keep it. The ancient Israelites, and this is why the law is our tutor for Christ, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter
1: 3.
0: Because under the law, men had a pretense of justice. You hurt somebody, you pay a fine. You don't care who you hurt, so long as you got money to keep paying fines. You sin, you bring a bull to the temple your conscience is clear, you could go sin again, don't worry, you got another bull, you could bring that one to the temple too. It's pretense. Pretense of righteousness is what we learned under the temple sacrifice. But there's a deeper meaning than that in blood sacrifices.
1: However, that was the result
0: Circumcision was a sign of the Old Covenant, that one would agree to submit to the commandments of God. Yahweh was not pleased with circumcision alone, but with obedience, with the substance of the covenant, and not merely the form. For this reason, Paul told the Corinthians that circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God. 1 Corinthians 7.19 Verse 27 Then the uncircumcised from nature who is fulfilling the law shall judge you who through writing and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. All men sin. These Judeans clinging to the law for their righteousness. All men who do so are going to transgress it at one point or another. And as the Apostle James says, because there's no propitiation
1: for sin, according
0: to the prophets, he who transgresses against the law is liable to the whole law. For he who fails in one point is liable to the whole law. So we can't look to the law for our righteousness.
1: We can only look to the Christ. All men sin, and therefore
0: no man can be justified by the law. As Paul says in Hebrews 10, 10, verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. The King James Version reads, verse 27 of this chapter, as a question. I do not. Neither do the NA 27, the NA 28. I didn't look at other translations. I really don't care about them, except to illustrate points when it's necessary. The Greek article, kahi, translated then here, is often used by Paul to continue interrogation. It's also often used in reply to interrogation in his rhetoric. Daniel chapter 7 tells us that certain evil forces would make war with the saints and prevail until, and I'll quote Daniel seven twenty two, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Therefore, it is apparent that the righteous shall also judge the wicked, as Paul states here. Speaking of those who would reject Christ and cling to the law for their sense of righteousness, then the uncircumcised from nature who is fulfilling the law shall judge you who are a transgressor of the law. From the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 1, Love righteousness, ye that be judges of the earth. He's addressing the people of Israel. From chapter 3 of that same book, But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them, as Christ asserted himself in John chapter 10. In the sight of the unwise, they seem to die, and their departure is taken for misery, and they're going from us to be utter destruction but they are in peace, there was God. For though they be punished in the sight of men, yet their hope is full of immortality. And having been a little chastised, they shall be greatly rewarded, for God proved them and found them worthy for himself. As gold in the furnace, he has tried them. Here we see the inspiration for the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 and the words of Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 1.7, and received them as a burnt offering. And in the time of their visitation, and, and there we see the inspiration for the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.15 and Philippians 4.18. And in the time of their visitation, they shall shine and run to and fro like sparks among the stubble. Obadiah 17, Obadiah 18, sound familiar? They shall judge the nations and have dominion over the people, and Yahweh shall reign forever, and their Lord shall reign forever. So we see in the wisdom of Solomon, in the book of Daniel, we have several witnesses that the saints of Yahweh shall indeed participate in the judgment of the world. As Paul professes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, from the King James Version, know ye not that we shall judge angels? Perhaps fallen angels <laughs> are the objects of such judgment. Yet even that does not preclude their destruction. Verse 28, the point is that the saints shall judge the world. Verse 28, one by appearance is not a Judean, And not by appearance in flesh is circumcision, but in concealment is one of Judean. And circumcision is of the heart, in spirit, not in writing, of which approval is not from man, but from Yahweh. Now, the universalists, they love to abuse Romans 2.28, imagining that it means the exact opposite of what Paul intended. One cannot imagine that where Paul says that one by appearance is not a Judean, that anyone other than the children of Israel can come into the covenants of God. The promise of the circumcised heart was meant only for the children of Israel. Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29 tell of the blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience and warn that Israel would be taken into captivity and alienated from God for their disobedience. The eventual putting away of Israel in punishment was foreseen at this early time. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, however, there is a prophecy of Israel's restoration, and it says, And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee. And thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither Yahweh thy God has driven thee. And thou shalt return unto Yahweh thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thine soul, that happened in Christ, or at least we have that opportunity in Christ. That then, Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither Yahweh thy God has scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out under the outmost parts of heaven, from thence will Yahweh thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord Yahweh thy God will bring thee back into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers, and Yahweh thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love Yahweh thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. In the first century, there were many Edomites, Canaanites, and other converts to Judaism who were circumcised in their genitals and pretended to keep the law. It is of these as well as of the Israelites who had not yet accepted Christ that Paul says, one by appearance is not a Judean. But the true children of Israel were to return to Yahweh God through his Christ with hearts circumcised for obedience to him, both the law and law and the prophets preclude the possibility of these things for anyone other than the children of Israel by explicitly prophesying them for the children of Israel. From Yahweh chapter 44, I'm sorry, from Isaiah chapter 44, remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee, Thou art my servant, O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, that's only possible in Christ, for I have redeemed thee. Once again, apart from the law, the sins of Israel were forgiven. Paul was only teaching as gospel exactly what the prophets had written concerning
1: the gospel. Romans chapter 3. What then is the
0: advantage of the Judeans? Or of what utility is the circumcision? Many, by all means, firstly for reason that they have been entrusted with the sayings of Yahweh. This is another tripping stone for Christians and for the critics of Paul of Tarsus. First, Paul is concerned for the Judean, the Judeans of his time, who are not the Jews of today. Of these Judeans, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, that he is only concerned for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He's concerned for Judeans of a certain race. Paul is a racist. And he proceeds to compare Jacob and Esau, where he says that not all of those of Israel are Israel, indicating with certainty that many Judeans were actually Edomites, something which is also learned from the pages of the historian Flavius Josephus. It's also mentioned in the pages of Book 16, of Strabo's geography. It's mentioned there twice. Paul's concern is for true genetic Israel, whom he goes on to label as vessels of mercy. And he labels the Edomites in that same place as vessels of destruction. So we certainly cannot assume that they are part of those whom have an advantage by having the scriptures. Paul's not talking about the vessels of destruction having an advantage by having the scriptures. He's only talking about the vessels of mercy who are still, at his time, Judeans, who have clung to the Edomite-led nation which has rejected Christianity in Christ for the most part. Secondly, because these Judeans had the sayings or oracles of God, does not preclude the fact that the Christians among the dispersed Israelites of the nations also had them. And they certainly did. There is nowhere in Scripture where we find that the Judeans possessed the sayings of Yahweh exclusively. They certainly did not. Paul is only stating that the Judeans had access to the word of God, and therefore they also had every opportunity and advantage to search out the truth
1: of the faith. That's all he's saying. So many
0: just plain silly Christians have imagined Romans 3.1 to mean that the Jews have the scripture because they're the people of God and we don't because we're lousy Gentiles who are just in this for a free ride. That's crazy. That's not what he's saying at all. Therefore, verse 3... What if some of them have not had faith? Shall their lack of faith nullify the faith of Yahweh? Certainly not. Rather, Yahweh will be true and every man a liar, just as it is written that you should be just in your words and you shall prevail when you are judged. The King James, the majority text, and the Codex Vaticanus have, you may prevail when you are judged. The, subject, the subjunctive is often used as a future. The lack of faith in men cannot change the substance of the faith as it is outlined in Scripture. Their, faith, their lack of faith does not nullify the faith of God. The truth is truth in spite of man. From Isaiah chapter 59, from verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against, against Yahweh and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yeah, truth fails, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. And Isaiah 59:15 is a perfect description of our social and economic conditions today. You want to depart from evil, reject the disgusting, vile sin of the world, race-mixing, sodomy. Well, you make yourself a prey. And Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, and it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. The truth may fail among men in the world, but Yahweh God will uphold it, and sustain those who seek to keep it. As for Paul's last statement, that you should be just in your words, and you shall prevail when you are judged. It's a quote from Psalm 51. I'm going to read in part the passage from the Septuagint. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy great mercy, And according to the multitude of thy compassions, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of mine iniquity, and my sin is continually before me. Against thee only have I sinned, and done evil before thee, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. And the last clause, reconciling it with Paul's citation, seems difficult, but Paul is taking what David says applies to God as an example that should also apply to to man. David said this in a prayer when he had wrongfully taken the wife of Uriah, when Nathan the prophet admonished him for it. And it is not God who is being judged. Rather, David professed his own sin, found both punishment and mercy with God, and a man who admits the truth and confesses his sins shall prevail when he is judged by finding mercy. It's that
1: simple. From
0: Proverbs, chapter 28, verse 13. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. Of course, if you don't plan on repenting and forsaking your sin, there's no point in confessing. From John, from 1 John, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 9. We've already read this tonight in another context. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And as Paul says here, God shall be true, and every man a liar. Romans chapter 3, verse 5. But if our injustice introduces the justice of Yahweh, what do we say? Is Yahweh unjust, then, imposing wrath? I speak from manhood, or I speak as a man. Certainly not Otherwise, in what way does Yahweh judge the cosmos, or the world, if you will, or the society? The exclamatory phrase, certainly not, "meganoito" in Greek, is literally, may it not be. The King James took a, took, took a liberty and commonly rendered the phrase as, God forbid, which is fine, but not really literal. From Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 12, or, because it appears twice, chapter 16, verse 25, there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And from Proverbs 21, two, every way of man is right in his own eyes. But Yahweh ponders the hearts. That's why only God can be our judge. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to Yahweh than sacrifice. And finally, from Isaiah chapter 51, from verse 4, Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for light of the people. My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, and mine arm shall judge the people. The isle shall wait upon me, and on mine arm shall they trust. Messianic prophecy, and all of this, of course, refers to Israel exclusively. The judgment of God is just, and the perception of man is faulty. Verse 7, Romans chapter 3. Indeed, if the truth of Yahweh were increased by my lie for his honor, why then am I still judged as a wrongdoer or a sinner? Some of rashly and unjustly claim that Paul here is promoting dishonesty. I address this in my series on the Paul bashers at length. Indeed, here Paul is condemning dishonesty, even if we think that we're being dishonest for good purpose. And he's talking about the truth of God. He's not talking about any other sort of dishonesty. However, dishonesty is wrong in any event, dishonesty towards your brethren, or especially towards your God. The language of this passage is a little clumsy in the King James Version, but it says pretty much the same thing. Even if the truth and honor of God were augmented by a lie, the liar is still a sinner, so, we should not lie, even if we somehow vainly think that by our lie we are helping god and and that's i've I've encountered that all the time people lying about the scriptures, thinking that they're helping God, and Paul condemns it here verse eight, and shall we not, just as we are slandered, and just as some suppose that we say? Bring about evil things
1: in order that good may come.
0: One ancient manuscript adds the words, upon us, at the end of the question, The good may come upon us. Of these, which decision is legitimate? The phrase hon to crema and decon esteen is quite literally translated here. And the context of the preceding
1: dialogue
0: very naturally makes it to be a question. Neither the King James Version nor the Greek Manuscripts of the NA27 or NA28 market is a question. The King James Version has an incomplete sentence in its place. Whose damnation is just? Well, well maybe the damnation of God is just, but that's not what's being said here. The word crema is a decision, a judgment, a sentence, a condemnation, a matter for judgment. The word "andikos" can be legitimate. It can be according to right. What is right? What is just? Or what is
1: legitimate? The scoffers
0: at Paul's time were claiming that Christians may as well sin more often so that the grace and mercy of God would be even more abundant. Oh, If you're going to get mercy for sin, instead of having to make these sacrifices, you should sin more, so God will offer you more mercy. That was the attitude. That was a very real attitude. Paul addresses them further in the later part of this third chapter of Romans. The accusations were serious, as it can be told from the writings of Tacitus and from the early Christian writer Tertullian, that both pagans and Jews were regularly accusing Christians of all sorts of crimes, from adultery to infanticide. And they were apparently doing so merely on the basis. The Christians believed in the forgiveness of sin apart from the regiment and sacrifices in the rituals of the law. Because Christians believed that, they imagined the Christians to be partaking in all sorts of licentious acts. The Jews are great at projecting their own behavior onto others. They do it all the time. They can't imagine the Christians could be moral apart from the law, or the law as they see it. Now, we're willing. We shall discuss these things further in the next portion of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans next Friday, tomorrow. 2C Line, Part 17, I pray. Thank you for listening, and good night. I will be here tomorrow night. Praise
1: Yahweh, the God of Israel.